0: Hey, y'all, listen up. <laughs> Welcome to the Joy Fuel Kindcast, a show dedicated to global joy. Joy Fuel shines a light on people, kids, and grown-ups all around the world, doing things for kindness, creativity, and joy. Becky Suzik is our host, our friend, our partner for joy. She's also my mom. The Joy Fuel Kindcast exists to increase global joy. Listeners are invited to open their hearts and minds to guest stories, to consider our own connection to kindness and creativity, and how we can use these as gateways to deepen our practice and experience the joy. Thanks for listening. I'm Colin, and this is my mom. Hello, Mother. Thank you,
1: Colin. Welcome, Joy Fuelers, to the Joy Fuel Kindcast. Our world is complicated, and being a human in 2018 certainly is not easy. So many of us have curiosities and perplexities about who we are and this type of being we have dubbed ourselves humankind. Our show intends an exploration of how we humans can and do put an emphasis on that kind bit of who we are. That's the main intention behind our show, a deeper exploration of kindness. The question I often ask myself how might I fully step into humankind's potential and embody our name, humankind? I hope our program will take us perhaps sometimes out of our comfort zones, challenge our way of thinking and being in and of this world, and invite us to go deeply into our kindness imaginations. This episode of the Joy Fuel Kindcast, we're calling it Episode Two, offers a tall order of just that, I think. Today, we will hear from two remarkable people nurturing the Human Kindness Foundation, an organization primarily volunteers, bringing kindness and spiritual exploration and meaning to some 35,000 people who are incarcerated, prisoners living in jails across America and a few other countries. While many of our programs will have content intended to be shared with children, I want to let you know that some of the details shared in the second half of our program include details about criminal acts and prison life. If you have children in your life, well, you may prefer to listen to this show beforehand to decide whether or not you'd like to share it with children. The Prison Ashram Project was founded 45 years ago by our guest Sita Lozoff with her late husband Bo Lozoff. Sita, the spiritual director for the foundation, and as you shall hear, eloquent historian, shares inspiring stories, including one about her meeting with the Dalai Lama. Catherine Dumas has been with the foundation since the 1980s, and she is responsible for so many aspects of the Human Kindness Foundation's outreach and their day-to-day operations. I'm grateful and excited to introduce you to both Catherine and Sita. Welcome to Joy Fuel. Sita, I'd love to hear about the early days and the beginning of the prison ashram project.
2: In 1973, Bo and I both read Ramdas's Be Here Now. And at the same time, we uh, happened to be visiting our brother-in-law in Terre Haute, Indiana, in federal prison. Um, he got a 12 to 40 sentence for uh, smuggling marijuana from Jamaica. Um, that may sound steep, but it was the second time he, he uh, did it. Uh, got probation the first time, and so uh, we loved um, be here now so much that we wrote to Ramdas and asked him if he um, would come visit us and do a talk down here in North Carolina. And we arranged it. He said yes. We arranged it, and he spoke at Duke. December 1st, 1973, and during that week, he told us that he had been putting copies of Be Here Now into prison libraries all over the country, and he was starting to get letters from people, from the men and women inside, um, and he was feeling a little bit overwhelmed by the amount of mail that he was getting. And um, as a result of our visiting our brother in law in a federal prison in Terre Haute, uh, Bo started getting interested in maybe having something to do with the prison population. And he told Ram Das about it. And Ram Das said, Well, why don't you take my letters? And that was the beginning of the prison ashram project. It began slowly uh, he, with just correspondence. And then he uh, wrote a little book called Inside Out. In 1985 is when we started getting uh, so big uh, that it was time for us to have our own um, our own uh, uh, place, and that's when Human Kindness Foundation began. Before that, we were a part of Ramdas's Hanuman Foundation, and that was also around the time. That Beau felt moved to write the book, which um, people now call The Prisoner's Bible. We're all doing time. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And the books you send out to people who are incarcerated, primarily?
2: That's right. I mean, they're probably a huge percentage of the books that we print, and there are actually a half a million in publication at this point. Uh, a huge amount. Uh, percentage of that have gone free to people in prison who have requested them. Mm. They've seen it's, you know, there's so many out there now that Mm. they see it, they read a couple pages and they write and they say, send us a book.
1: Mm. Catherine, you've been with the Humankinds Foundation for a long time as well.
3: Yes, certainly not as long Mm -hmm. as Mm Sita. I joined them in the early 90s. I joined the board of directors first and then became uh, paid staff in 2000. So I've been here full-time for 18 years. I met Sita socially. A friend introduced us and uh, gradually started volunteering just a little bit, just an hour here and there. And one thing led to another. I I never set out intending to become full-time staff. At the beginning, I I just saw a project that looked good and people that I trusted with my money. So I started making donations, small donations. As time went by, it just happened. Mm-hmm. We became family to each other and became uh, more and more involved. I became more and more involved in the project that they were already uh, spending their entire lives on. And here we are, Sita mm-hmm. and I. Uh, we do have help, but Sita and I are the, the only full-time people here at at HKF right now. Hmm. A lot of the people that we work with are severely cut off from their community. And so we try to help them build community where they are, if that's possible. Sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes we're the only community they have, even though they have to write to us. It takes weeks sometimes for us to get a reply back to them. So it's pretty thin, but it's an important line of connection. It's, It's an important piece them if this is the only chance they have in their lives for kindness or for community, for feeling connected. I think we're really in trouble when we don't feel connected to other people.
1: The work that you're doing with people who are incarcerated, you're sending mailings to them and sometimes you're able to go into prisons and work with them. Can you share a little bit more about both aspects?
3: Well, most of our people that we reach are through the mail. We have about 35,000 people on our mailing list at any given time who are locked up. They might be in a jail, a prison, sometimes other kinds of facilities, but those are the main ones. So that's how we reach the most people. We also spend some of our time on groups that happen in person. Of course, we can't reach as many people that way. We can't go to 35,000 people and do meditation groups, but we do spend some of our time and resources in that way when it's possible. And one of the ways we like to leverage our work is to support other people who are going in doing meditation groups anywhere. We can send materials. We can send our books. We have a, a guide on our website for how people can get started if they want to teach meditation in a local jail or prison. So we really want everyone to have access to that in-person contact. And since we can't do that ourselves, we do also have the books. We're All Doing Time, which Bo wrote, finished it in 1985. People respond very deeply to that book. Bo was not a professional writer. That was the first book he wrote. He didn't think of himself as a writer But somehow, that book happened through him, and it has a life of its own. The people reading it now, many of them were not born when that book was written, and they're still writing to us about the personal impact that the book has. There's something about that book that just reaches people at a place that's deeply personal. Some of it may be because of the wonderful cartoons in the book. Uh, Our friend Rick Morgan drew the cartoons, and they're just fantastic. They're simple line drawings, but they really convey a sweetness and humor, and then Bose words, and then drawing from all the different religions and traditions, drawing practices, drawing stories from the different traditions. The book just reaches people. We can't really fully explain why. So those people on our mailing list who don't have access to an in-person class can still take that book, feel that very personal connection, and work with the book almost as if they were working with an in-person meditation teacher. We get letter after letter from people saying, I never even finished reading a book before, but this book stays by my bed, and I read it every night, I read a few pages every night, or I do practices from it every day, that kind of thing. So. We love being able to get the book into the hands of a person who's incarcerated, whether or not they also have access to teachers. Your intention with the books and
1: um, the newsletters that go to people is to help them to um, nurture a meditation practice regardless of their religious background, or even if they don't have a religious background. And what is the ultimate goal of that for the people who are incarcerated?
2: I would say that few people end up meditating. I mean, there's a wonderful meditation practice in there, and there's yoga and other practices, and we, act, we, you know, we very much recommend people do it. But I think people are learning to be kinder. I think, I think that's what it is, and that's more the goal than them leaving with a practice or something like that you know the practices help them be kinder and we clearly recommend that i think that a lot of the people who read these books are going to stop hurting people i really believe that with all my heart
1: how do they begin if they're hurting other people they're hurting themselves
2: Um, right well, as the Dalai Lama says clearly in the Book of Joy, the way to take care of yourself is by starting to help other people, by getting getting away from me, 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 and just starting to look outside yourself and see, you know, there are a lot of people suffering out there. Is there anything I can do to, even with just a smile, mm. to help things? Mm. And they will find... Um, it' been my experience as well that they start feeling better, that they are taking care of themselves when they, when there's more of an outer directed energy and kindness. Mm-hmm. It works that way.
1: And the intention is to help them, feel human mm-hmm. <laughs> and is there an intention for them when they come out of prison or is it, it regardless of, of the time that they serve I mean how do you look at the big picture of the program in, in the context of people
3: who are imprisoned our mission is really pretty simple our mission statement is to encourage more kindness in the world starting with our prisons and jails so that's just starting mm-hmm. it it almost doesn't matter to us whether a person is locked up. Of course it matters in the sense that we care about people, their suffering. We want them to be safe. We want them to be free if they're safe to be free. All those things are true. We're, we're people, and we care about the people who write to us. But when you dig down really deep, our mission isn't dependent on whether anyone's going to ever see the streets again. Some of our best friends that we've known for the longest through the mail and in person are people who have death sentences. They're never going to see the streets again, but they can be of service. They can have valuable, meaningful lives. They can be kind, beautiful human beings. We know several examples of that. We have a book that we distribute free to people who are incarcerated called Finding Freedom, Writings from Death Road written by Jarvis Masters. He'll never walk the streets again. Jarvis lives on death row in California. Uh, His uh, team is working to change his sentence so that he won't be executed. They're not even working on getting him released. It's really a done deal. He's going to spend his life in prison. And he's having a beautiful impact on people all over the country. People love that book. They can relate to it. It's a book about his Buddhist practice while incarcerated. He tells wonderful stories. He talks about situations that we couldn't, we couldn't describe those situations. We haven't lived them. And it, it really makes an impact on people who are living similar situations. Some of them will get out. They're changing their lives because of Jarvis. And they will get out, and they will have a more direct impact on their community, outside of prison than Jarvis does. But Jarvis's life is valuable and meaningful. We could go on and on about some of the amazing people who have death sentences in this country. It doesn't mean necessarily that they were wrongfully convicted. Most of them did something awful. Sometimes that was decades ago. Sometimes they're very different people than they were at the time that the crime was committed. If they've chosen to use those decades to go deeper and to dive into one religion or another, or, like you said before, we don't require that someone have a religion, these practices can be used by people who are atheists, as long as they believe in something. Maybe they believe in humanity. Maybe they believe in kindness. Maybe they believe in uh, something a bit more mystical but not specifically religious. They can use these practices to become really beacons of light for their unit. There are maybe as many as a few hundred other people living in the unit with them that they can touch on a daily basis, that they can be community for. And we've seen that over and over. People writing to us about the guy down the hall who has made such a difference in their lives or who they go to when they're troubled or who they rely on to help them Calm down. So, we write to people from that extreme of they're never going to get out to the other extreme maybe they're already out, or maybe they're only going to be in jail for a few days or weeks. Most people stay longer than that, but it could happen that they're only there for a very brief time. And even for people who have never had any experience with incarceration, there are people who use our books who relate to them for different reasons. I just got a nice, wonderful, generous gift from someone um, who said that the reason she reached out to give us this gift is that her friend Pierre, and I won't say his whole name because of confidentiality, but her friend Pierre got our books in, it sounds like he got one pretty soon after Beau wrote it. it was sometime in the 80s, he got the book, We're All Doing Time. And he had a chronic illness that came with a lot of pain and various surgeries and so on, recovery time. And she said he used Beau's book to help him through that prison, the prison of physical suffering, and it really made a difference to him. And it made a difference to her to watch how he handled that, and that tool was so valuable to him. And he did die from his condition about a year ago, and she just reached out to us because she wants to support this project that was so valuable to him. Neither one of them has any connection to incarceration. Mm-hmm. So yeah. our goal really is that. And we, Beau used to say, the outcome isn't really our business. The, we seem to have this tool that the world seems to need and value. When people like Pierre's friend value it, they share their resources of money. Other people value it and come and share their resources of volunteer time. People need it, apparently, because they're still writing us for it and writing us the thanks, oh, that book made such a difference. So we see that the need is there. We see that the support is there. We're just the clerks who stand in the middle and help that energy keep flowing from the people who value it and have resources to the people who need it and reach out to ask for it. What those people do with it in a way isn't our business, but of course, we love hearing the stories of someone who really changed, someone who maybe healed a relationship with their children, or healed a relationship with a cellmate, or recovered from an addiction. Of course, we love those stories, but Bo every now and then would remind us that really isn't our business. We're here to do a job, and as long as we keep that energy flowing, we're doing our job. Mm-hmm. When I
1: think about the collective belief about people who are incarcerated, the words beacon of light doesn't really, you know, normally it's not in our uh, vernacular. It's not the way we talk about people who are incarcerated. So it's really incredible and wonderful and they are worth more than the crime that they may have committed. It's difficult for people to think that they should be deserving of kindness. That's I think maybe a shift for people in their thinking and their feeling as they're listening to this, yes. especially if they themselves have been a, a victim of of a crime. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and the collective conscious about people who are incarcerated.
3: Well, we certainly don't want to sound like we're minimizing the suffering of of victims. There are a lot of ways to look at that, and we don't we don't want to shy away from any of those ways. We don't want to oversimplify. This is a complicated world we live in. Human relationships are complicated. Most of the people who commit crimes have been a victim of something. Maybe it was child abuse. Maybe it was a previous crime. So when you say, what about the victims? We say, yes, let's help heal the victims, including the ones that are currently incarcerated. And let's prevent future victims Most of the people who are incarcerated in this country will get out at some point. There are a few who never will, but most will. Most will be released, whether it's a few days from now or a few years from now or even 10, 20 years from now. They will be back in our community. What kind of condition do we want them in? Do we want them feeling connected to humanity? Do we want them feeling calm and able to handle their own emotions? I think so. I think that helps fewer victims become victims later down the road. Uh, So even if we're just doing it selfishly, it is of value to help people heal their own Mm -hmm. violence, their own turmoil, their own wounds. Uh, And then, of course, you have a lot of other levels at which we believe every person is a child of God, every person is a brother or sister of the rest of us humanity. So we can talk on that level of it's just the right thing to do. Even those people who are never going to leave the confines of a prison unit still deserve to be treated as human beings. Mm -hmm. Sita, is there anything you'd like to add?
2: Um, I was just recalling uh, an amazing interview that I uh, read years ago. This woman's uh, child was uh, raped and murdered. And, um and she said her Christian faith did not allow her to be angry at the murderer, that it was really it was really important for her to forgive. And that that's, I think the cornerstone of any, any and every religion is um, is forgiveness.
1: You were talking about the books and their relevancy to all people, not just people who are incarcerated, and how I came to know of your work, even though I'm just next door in Raleigh. I hadn't heard of your work until I'd seen a documentary. Fred Rogers was um, giving out your books, and um, I wonder mm-hmm. if you could share a little bit about your connection with Mr. Rogers.
2: We discovered at some point in our office that a man named Fred Rogers in Pittsburgh was buying all of those books and multiple copies and someone in the office said I I think I think that's Mr. Rogers we had heard that he was in Pittsburgh and at one point he called and the voice—I um, mean, he has such an unmistakable voice. I don't—I think it was me who answered the phone, but I can't <laughs> promise you that. And at one point, he invited me and Bo to visit him in uh, at his studio in Pittsburgh, and uh, and we went up there and had just a wonderful time with this wonderful man who is uh, so undisappointing. Coincidentally, we happened to be there during the time of the Columbine shootings. You know, right when we were sitting in that office uh, with him and talking about violence and TV, you know, there was that kind of just coincidence uh, going on. But but I think that Fred has um, done an amazing thing in our culture, you know, and to be so loved uh, in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad he's getting, you know, that more people are starting to, to know of him and that there's a new documentary. and mm.
3: Yes, the full title is Mr. Rogers and Me, A Deep and Simple Documentary. And that subtitle is referring to the title of one of our books, Deep and Simple, which was written by Bo Lozoff and apparently was Mr. Rogers' favorite book or certainly at least one of his favorite sure. books. He did buy many copies of it. He gave it to people as gifts. So the documentary maker, Benjamin Wagner, came to visit us and to interview Beau to talk about Beau's friendship with Mr. Rogers. Deep and simple. They both were interested in depth and simplicity. They didn't want flashy, fancy, complicated. They wanted real human interaction, kindness, kindness. And that title may... We don't know how Mr. Rogers first heard about us, but it's possible he saw that title and it appealed to him because it it does uh, sort of epitomize what he stood for and also what Bo stood for. So for people that are interested in uh, our books, especially if they do not have experience with incarceration, they might want to start with Mr. Rogers' favorite book, which is Deep and Simple. Or if they like fiction, they might enjoy beau's book called lineage and other stories i happen to love fiction and that's a book of short stories which cover the same themes that beau covered in his other books but for some people fiction is a more accessible form and especially the the story called lineage within that book it's a it's a story it is fiction but it's based on beau's relationships with people who have lived similar experiences. It's a book about a man who, during his long period of incarceration, meets another man who, in the beginning of that time, is a violent, destructive person. By the end of the story, he has begun a transformation that's very powerful and very much like what we hope happens to a lot of the people who read our books so that that story itself lineage kind of tells the story of what we hope for our the best use of our materials sort of the highest we can hope for Mm
2: -hmm.
3: if people want to order
1: books for themselves or if they want to order a book for somebody who's incarcerated how do they do
3: that Well, if they want us to send free books to people who are incarcerated, all they need to do is send us that person's name and address. And it needs to be a complete address with everything that the prison requires. Usually, that at least means a prison ID number. Sometimes it also might be a cell number or a unit name, something like that. If they'd like to purchase books for themselves, uh, we have a website with a store. They can order the books at our website, which is humankindness.org very simple. There are similar websites, so you've got to look for, make sure you're at the right place, humankindness.org. And looking around a little, you'll see that it's us, that it's a prison ministry. Of course, human kindness can mean, you know, people can use that term and do lots of different kinds of work. Uh, So there are lots of other websites around and organizations with similar names. Can you send books where in the world? Mostly in the U.S. Uh, We do send materials to other countries as well if we're confident about the address and how long a person's going to be there. But most of our materials go to the U.S. and most of them are in English. But we do have uh, three books in Spanish as well. We never ask for donations in connection with sending books to people who are locked up. Often people will donate at that time or they'll even order and pay for it online as the way to send us that name and address but most people who are locked up don't have a strong support network outside at least in the sense of a network with a lot of resources so we never want to ask families and friends of people who are locked up to pay for those books again if they want to donate and they have the resources to do that great that's how we survive is on donations but It's a big financial hardship on a family to have a family member who's locked up. And even if they didn't start out with financial troubles, often the event itself that started the whole cycle and then the incarceration is a huge financial hardship on a family. So other families are being generous and reaching out for whatever their own reasons are. And so far it works.
1: You're listening to the JoyFuel Kindcast. This is Becky. Thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying today's program with the Human Kindness Foundation, Sita and Catherine. I wanted to let you know that each program, I will create a page where we will have all of the links to different media, books, things that we talk about on the program. So for today's program, if you visit joyfuel.org, little backslash thingy two, the number two, joyfuel.org backslash two. You can access all those links there. The second half of the program, we will be touching on some very sensitive subjects. If you have children, you may wish to either wear headphones for this part or delay your listening until a bit later. I want to be very conscientious with our program here. And not give you any surprises in content, there will be things that we specifically have for children to listen to, but the second half, well, just use your discretion. I have a nine-year-old son, as you know, and he will hear some of this show, probably not all of it. Yeah, I just wanted to let you know that. So we're going back to the show now, and Sita's going to tell us about her visit with His Holiness the Dalai Lama.
2: In the mid-90s sometime, Bo got a letter from a young man inside who uh, wanted Bo's advice. He wanted to know whether he should risk his life to save someone from being raped. He lived in a dorm situation, and uh, Bo just felt like he could not answer that question responsibly uh, without asking one of our elders. And he wrote three letters, one to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, uh, one to uh, Swami Chidananda, and another one to Thich Nhat Hanh. And the only one who responded was the Dalai Lama, and we got a, a fax. They were communicating in that way from uh, India by fax, and we got a fax saying, His Holiness Wonders if you're planning on coming to India anytime soon and um would like for to have that conversation uh, with him in India. I immediately got on the phone and made reservations for our first trip to India and we we went and met with His Holiness. We had an hour meeting, and we actually never got to answer that question but we had a, an amazing experience for for someone who has been called the buddha of compassion avalokiteshvara means the buddha of compassion and we got uh, to feel what that is and and an experience that we had personally is that after that wonderful hour uh, meeting with him we stood in front of him from uh, for what he regularly does, and you may have seen him do this on TV, is that um, you hand him a kata, which is a scarf, and, and he blesses it, and he puts it over your head. And so we were standing in a line. It was Bo first. I was in the middle, and our friend Beth, who was there to uh, record and take photos. So he stood in front of Bo, and received Bo's kata, and he blessed it. He put it over Bo's head, and he held his hand, and he looked into his eyes for a long time. And I'm feeling so much, uh, wondering, you know, what this is going to be like. I'm next. And so he, um, I hand him my kata, and he takes it, and he blesses it, and he never looked up. He never looked up to, to me, and he never took my hands. And he moved to in front of Beth, and I just wondered if maybe he had something, there was something about women, or, you know, who knows? But I was definitely feeling crushed uh, at the time. And so he stood in front of Beth, and she hands him her kata, and he blesses it, and he puts it over her head, and he holds her hands, and he looks into her eyes, and then he turns around to leave the room and immediately he just turns around on a dime and he stands in front of me and he takes my hands and he looks into my eyes for a very long time very very long time and he and then he leaves and it was it was beau's guess that the Buddha of compassion cannot let a ripple go by when there is not something like that happening. And um, I take that into my heart and f- and feel that. And I have a very, very close feeling and connection about His Holiness. He's He's somebody who is very touching and meaningful uh, to me. And if there's one more book, and it's not both, that I would recommend it's called The Book of Joy. And it's conversations with His Holiness the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And it says that the answer to joy is kindness
1: question that you posed to the Dalai Lama was on behalf of an incarcerated person who was grappling with whether or not he should do something to prevent a rape. The, um,
2: whether person. he should risk his life. But yes.
1: And you said that the Dalai Lama didn't specifically answer the question, but I wonder if an answer came um, to you and Bo or you know how you how that experience may
2: have influenced that decision, um, how to respond to that question. I don't really have an answer. I, I think if that question came to me today, I might try someone else or I'd at least pray and reflect on it That's uh, that's a really uh, deep a uh, question that um, that I think implies some kind of responsibility on my end of telling somebody um, the answer to that. So I'm not quite sure the answer to that question. Do you have anything to add to that?
3: People frequently ask us for advice. Typically, it isn't about such dire consequences as should I risk my life. It might be more something like. Should I divorce my wife? And what we tend to tell people is that if they're using spiritual practices to help themselves calm down and gain a little sanity and strength for themselves, then they will make their best decision. And of course, we can't know. We, we don't know their situation, their family. Hundreds of things we don't know about what's going on that needs to be taken into account to make the best decision. But we do trust that you'll make a better decision still might not be perfect but you'll make a better decision if you're coming from a place of your own calm and your own centered self Your yourself that has meditated every day for the last week is going to be probably better at making a decision than yourself who has been getting drunk every day for the last week so sita has a favorite quote um, your refrigerator quote do you want to say it?
2: My my refrigerator quote is trust in the absolute wisdom of each soul. That people are being guided, and um, and I was just going to add to um, Catherine's beautiful comment is to ask for guidance when you're in a situation that is um, that is difficult. To ask for ask and pray for guidance and help right at that moment, that God is there and will respond, that's the promise.
1: At some point in our lives most of us will know somebody who is incarcerated and there was a situation that happened to me where I had a very beloved teacher when I was in late junior high, early high school who was a hero to me because I had a lot of bullying and teasing that I went through and he always gave me such great hope and made me feel special and would remind me that my life is bigger than my school experience. And he really, like I said, gave me hope that I wouldn't have had, I don't think, if he had not been in my life. A few years ago, I learned that he had been charged criminally for the molestation of boys and ended up being incarcerated, and I had a just a, a really difficult time reconciling because he had showed so much kindness to me. I wanted to write to him because I felt that the kindness that he had given to me, I had to ask myself, "Well, was that not real?" <laughs> you know, I had to go through this reconciliation process, and I really wanted to reach out to him to let him know that what he had done for me as a child had really made a big impact on my life as an adult and that, that I, I valued what he had done for me and um, even though I didn't know the specifics of what he had done, People were advising me not to write to him. And what happens if he tries to hurt you? And there was just all of this, you know, shaming. And, you know, he wasn't entitled to get a letter that would be something affirming of something good that he did. And it really troubled me because it was like I had to go against the status quo of our culture to do what was in my heart. And it was n- nothing to... Um, negate or let him off the hook for what he had done that was wrong but to affirm what he had done to me as a young person that was good and kind Mm -hmm. and I ended up getting through that and I wrote to him and shortly after I had sent him the letter I had a beautiful letter from him and um, although he wouldn't talk uh, specifically about his case, he, he said that now he spends a lot of time in prayer um, for, um, for a lot of people that he, that he knows, and it was a beautiful letter to receive. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was something that I had to go through in myself because of the cultural conditioning of people who are incarcerated, they're, they're worthless, they're worth less, you know, they lose their voting rights, they lose everything, they go into prison, they lose their choices, they lose their freedom. And in that reconciliation, realizing that he still had this incredible value to many people, not just me. When I wrote to him, I was going against the advice of others, but it felt right. And so I wonder for our listeners, how do they write a letter to somebody incarcerated?
3: To paraphrase an Indian sage, do what you must with another human being, but never put them out of your heart. We like that saying because it acknowledges both that there are sometimes things you need to do to be safe or to stop someone from harming yourself or others, and there's never a need to put a person out of your heart. If we were a completely enlightened culture, we could lock up a person like that who might harm a child, and while that person was locked up, we could treat them well, we could help them heal. We'd keep them locked up as long as they needed to be to be safe and they would not be dehumanized in the process. I think that your heart is big enough. And from the story you just told, it's clear that it is to hold both that he harmed some people and that's not okay. And that can't be allowed to continue. And There's more to him than that one fact, and he is a human being still who can be loved and valued and can have a positive impact in some other ways. We don't really see a conflict. We know it feels like a conflict to a lot of people, and possibly in the early stages of hearing about something, we have to go through our own emotions, we have to work toward a place where we can hold both but we do feel like hearts can be big enough to hold both.
2: I think that's where the, um, the woman that I talked about previously, whose uh, child was raped and murdered, I think that's where she got to, was to that place where she held both in her and was able to forgive in that space mm. as a Christian.
3: Mm.
1: If somebody knows somebody that's incarcerated, what do you say when you write a letter to somebody that, you know... How do you
3: start? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you know that person, I think you just start with a simple "Hello, I here I am" kind of message. You know, I I hear that you're locked up. Do you want a friend? You know, just something simple. There's no need to hide from it. That person knows they're locked up, and um, they know you know now that you're writing to them at that <laughs> at that address. So there's no need to shy away from that. And yet, on the other hand, you might not want to focus on it too much. I don't need to know why they're there, what their crime was. I'm not in a position to decide whether they're going to be released or how long they're going to be there. Uh, And I find that a gift that I'm not, I have no vote in that, no, no say in it at all. So I simply meet that person where they are if they write a letter about loving a sunset, then I might talk about a sunset the next time. But they might be in a place where they can't see the sky. Just try to connect with them, let them lead the conversation to some degree, but also just reach out as a a person. Mm. It matters so much to people to get mail that it probably doesn't matter that much whether we get the words exactly right in those personal Mm. notes. Using someone's name Mm. is very important to them. That's something that gets a bit stripped away inside many facilities. They're referred to by their ID number or possibly by their last name in a gruff kind of impersonal way. Uh, They're not very often just called by the name that their mother Mm -hmm. calls them. Mm -hmm. And so we try our best to use a person's name the way they want it used. Mm -hmm. The human connection is, is the main goal in a letter. Exactly what you talk about probably doesn't matter that much. Thank
1: you. You being a volunteer-based organization, what do the volunteers do, and how many
3: volunteers do you have, and do you need more volunteers?
2: (laughs) It's your department.
3: (laughs) (laughs) We love our volunteers. We really could not do this on this kind of a budget without volunteer help. It's It literally would be impossible. So yes, we always need new volunteers. Uh, sometimes it takes us a little time. I, I do have to say that we occasionally say we don't have an opening right now, but that would only mean these few weeks. Uh, we do always welcome new volunteer energy, and our volunteers do a lot of different things. We have, for example, our friend Hannah, who has become our friend by volunteering. We didn't know her mm-hmm. ahead of time. I think is that I true, Cita? It feels like we've known her forever, (laughs) so hard to say, but she comes in for a half a day a week and does data entry, which is not the most glamorous job. She comes faithfully half a day a week and has done that for years and just seems so happy and willing to help us out in that way. We just are incredibly grateful that people like her exist who just want to help out. We have three times a year, we have a big project of sending out our newsletters And it takes a lot of hand sorting and stuffing and so on. And those days, three times a year, we might need five or six volunteers all at one time, sitting around a table for hours, stuffing (laughs) envelopes. Again, not the most glamorous job, but it has to be done. And it saves us a lot of money over paying a service to do that. And lots of things in between. People package books. People drive the books to the post office. So lots of things, even things like mowing the grass or sweeping the deck are things that we often get volunteer help with so that we don't have to spend extra money on those things. But we exist on a pretty small budget. We don't take any uh, grant kind of money, that big competitive grant writing. We just don't do that or certainly any government money. I don't think we would qualify for it if we tried, Mm -hmm. but we don't even try. We're not that kind of organization. We exist on individual donations Many of them, $25, $50, $10. Uh, So everywhere we can save a few hundred by not having to hire, for example, a house cleaner uh, for our office, that helps us a lot. It helps us reach more people. And, of course, we also have people writing letters and notes to people who are incarcerated, sharing their heart in that way. And that's wonderful, too. So Mm -hmm. it's the whole range.
1: I wonder if there are any stories of people who have been blessed by the Human Kindness Foundation and the project that were then let out, you know, after serving time, and um, any work that they were able to do as a result of the the restoration that they went through
2: because of your work. Well, my dear friend, Tall Tom Dodson, uh, he's in Houston. He hasn't done work with us, but he was one of those people, when he was inside, that people could turn to. He would always uh, help out. And he became a prison monk. And now that he is out, uh, he and I talk every month or so. It's been years now that he's been out, but he's uh, AA is his path. and uh, And he's helping people using AA. And he's just a lovely man inside and out he takes aa programs into some
3: jails that are near him in prison he's leveraging his experience
2: sonny jacobs who is a dear friend who uh was in prison on death row uh, in florida for a crime she did not commit and her husband actually ended up being executed in Florida for that same crime, and they were exonerated. There's actually even a movie starring Susan Sarandon called Exonerated um, that talks about Sunny. She plays Sunny in the movie, and she's an amazing person. She has done lots of anti-death penalty work, as you can imagine, She who could be better. And she and her husband have started something in Ireland that they call the Sunny Center, and what the Sani Center does is take in uh, people who have been exonerated, and they nourish them, and they hold them, and they care for them. And they could spend weeks or even months. They pay for them to come there, and they take care of them and, uh, and help them feel good again. Mm-hmm. So that's Dear Sani.
3: Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Wow. We have a friend that we've known for five or six years now. Who's incarcerated? He he has a, a a death sentence. He lives on death row, and he has become a deeply kind human being over the years. He's one of the ones that we know other men lean on him for support and for uh, guidance. He gives he gives everything of himself to the men on his unit. They they really lean on him for, for a lot of strength and wisdom. And not too long ago, uh, some lawyers took on his case to, uh, to try to get his sentence commuted, not to get him to released. He doesn't claim wrongful conviction, uh, but simply to get his sentence changed from a death sentence to a life sentence, meaning that he would never be released, but he also would not be executed. And he struggled with whether he wanted to fight that legal battle. He would have to participate, of course. The lawyers would do the majority of the work, but he would have to participate and give his permission and could mean some struggle and some attention brought to him and so on. And at first he didn't want to do all of that. He had made peace with his sentence years ago and kind of didn't want to stir that pot. But over time, he told us, he reflected on it and decided to let them try. And his motivation for that was he has grandchildren, and he didn't want his grandchildren to have that fact in their lives, that their grandfather had been executed by the state. Having an incarcerated grandfather was already part of their reality. Having an executed grandfather, he felt, would be more of a wound for them. And so for their sake, he was willing to open that legal case again. That's the kind of change that we are privileged to see, someone who isn't doing it for himself anymore. He's doing it for someone else that he cares about. For that kindness for the children. Right. For his family. That's who he's thinking about, not himself even in a matter of life and death like that.
1: Mm-hmm. and these stories of work that people are doing after they have done this personal work of beacons of light that are
3: incarcerated doing work for people around them? It happens all the time. And it, usually it's fairly simple. It, it's a little hard to distill it into something that sounds like an amazing story, but it is an amazing story for someone to take the focus off the fact that they're doing a 12-year sentence, and turn it to, I'm going to make this the best library in any prison anywhere. And we know one man who has done that. Uh, He spends a lot of his day in that library, and he could just sit there and pass the time. That's his job. He's assigned to it. But he cares. He wants to make sure there are good books there. He wants to make sure they're taken care of. He wants to make sure the other guys know what's there and have an easy way to use it. That's the kind of thing happening all over the place. And he has, now we don't know his case, but he has told us that he's wrongfully incarcerated. We don't have any way to know that or any need to know whether that's true. But again, he could focus on the injustice that he's suffering through, and instead he's focusing on making a good library for the other men who are there. Mm -hmm. We have one friend named Jonathan who struggles with, deep mental illness. And that's largely why he's incarcerated is things he's done that stemmed from his mental illness. But when he's doing well, when he's not in the throes of his illness, he uh, really reaches out to help other people. And he he wrote to us and said, there are so many people here to help. Jesus would be jealous. (laughs) And it's so true that anybody who's living incarcerated is surrounded by other people who are incarcerated, and most of them are lonely. They might be scared. They might be sick. They might be addicted. They might be all kinds of troubled things. So there are a lot of people to help. Everywhere you look, there are good people. So when they get calm enough and healthy enough to look past their own troubles, of course they help each other out. Just like any other community, people help each other out.
2: It's been said that in one of the Buddhists' last births, he asked to be reborn in hell because that's where he could do the most good. And sometimes I write that to the guys who are having a hard time and you know that they have an opportunity to be kind and that they will actually, what the Buddha calls, what Dalai Lama calls wise selfishness, they will actually feel the difference.
1: Is there anything that our listeners can do to support your mission and what you're doing?
3: Well, we certainly appreciate people spreading the word about us. We don't know how most of the people who support us found out about us. We have been around for 45 years. Some of our supporters have been with us nearly that long, which is amazing and wonderful. And we don't do a lot of outreach to find new people. We don't do much that you would call fundraising. People can help spread the word about what we're doing to others who might be interested. That helps us a lot. We're here to connect people's generosity with people's need and to be the conduit. So if someone wants to give in a way that will support the spiritual life of people behind bars, they can do that. We appreciate when people buy our books we even have T-shirts on uh, for sale on our website, which does both. It helps people be aware of us, and, of course, we make a few dollars on those sales to help with the free books that we send. Our mission, again, is to spread kindness. Anytime someone shares an act of kindness, they really are part of our mission. If our materials help encourage them to do that, all the better. So it isn't necessarily just for people who are locked up. And it isn't necessarily about raising money for us it's about spreading kindness and if they know someone who would be bolstered by our materials we love that those books are sometimes given as gifts to help someone else feel a little better or to be inspired or to have hope i think our books help a lot of people find hope that there is meaning to life and that no matter how bad it's been up to now people can find peace through using these specific practices that Bo teaches in his books and or by simply starting to reach out in those ways and acts of kindness really do help people feel better and feel more connected to each other. Thank you both so much for sharing
1: the stories and for this beautiful work that you're doing for kindness for so many people and for sharing the stories of Bo, who died six years ago. Six years. And I feel like he was here with us today Mm -hmm. as we were talking. So thank you so much for, for sharing. I'd like to extend a special note of gratitude to Benjamin Wagner and his creative endeavor, a documentary he wrote, directed, and produced called Mr. Rogers and Me, all about kindness guru Fred Rogers, one of my heroes. Benjamin's beautiful film shares the connection between Mr. Rogers and the Human Kindness Foundation, and thanks to Benjamin, he brought my attention to this remarkable organization based in Durham, North Carolina. Thank you for your inspiring commitment to storytelling, Benjamin.
0: The Joy Fuel theme music is the song Being Kind by Nemo Patel. Our show is produced and hosted by Becky Susick. It is made possible from a global kindness grant from the Pollination Project and from generous listeners like you. If possible, please consider donating to help with all the show's costs. Visit www.joyfuel.org. We promise to put your gift to work for kindness, creativity, and joy. Can you see love for me shining Because
1: what you see in me, I can see in you. And soon enough, you and me, will be out of time.
0: This
3: will be all we can leave.